We're going to get right into the Word of God this morning. Uh, we started a new series and um, we are speaking about the whole idea of beauty. And when Jesus sees His church, and when He looks at His church, He sees beauty. Uh, well, last week we started with Revelation 1, just, just explaining the vision of the Son of Man and how John saw the Son of Man in all His beauty and splendor. And then right out, out of that, chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation speaks about how beautiful He sees His church, how He compliments His church in the incredible things that the church understands about who they are and how beautiful the church is to Him. But then also He says, my church, my bride, there's some things that I see in you that is still broken that I want to beautify. I want to come into, into your, your space and I want to speak to you as my bride and I, I want to say that there's some things that I want to bring the beauty out of. It's so beautifully explained last week that when a young woman falls in love with a young man, that you can see that it's true love when he pulls everything that's beautiful out of her. When she just, just runs over with beauty because this man is pulling that out of her. And that's what Jesus has for his church. He looks at his church and he says, yes, I get that there are difficult moments and difficult things and hardships and, and brokenness. But I want to compliment you in, in the beauty that you have. And I want to come and call out the beauty that I still see in you. And that's what we're going to do for the next seven weeks. Where we're going to study the seven words to the seven churches in Revelation. Now in order for us to, to get into that, I want to take us back to the beautiful moment that John had to see the beauty of the Son of Man. And this is important because the whole book of Revelation is about Jesus in the middle, Jesus on the throne. Who of you have kind of felt it difficult to read Revelation before? Put up your hands in agreement. It's a little bit like, ah, this is crazy. And then it feels a little bit like hectic at times, right? And we try and interpret the things, but the Bible says that it's blessed when we, when we, we, we study this book. It's good to study this book. And I want to make it simple. Revelation is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about the revelation of the Son of Man, the revelation of the one who has paid for our salvation. That's what it's all about. And then how do we align in that vision? How do we come into it? So this book starts with John on the island of Patmos having an encounter with the vision of the Son of Man with Jesus. And he describes him in an incredible way. Last week we studied it. He ascribed him with, with white hairs on his head. The wisdom of Christ with, with fire in his eyes. You can go and read it in Revelation 1. How his, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. He had eyes like a flame. Just a beautiful picture. And what really is amazing is that John was very familiar with Jesus. Because he walked with him in, in, in Jesus' earthly mission. In fact, John was so familiar with Jesus that he is considered the beloved disciple. Jesus and John had a, another level of friendship that the others might not have enjoyed. He was one of those disciples that Jesus really walked closely with. But what's amazing is when he saw Jesus in heaven, he said he wanted to fall dead. Because he saw a whole other side of the magnitude and the splendor and the glory and the lordship of Christ in a whole new way. The very John that walked with Jesus now sees him in a whole new light. And he says, I'm not sure that I can stand in the presence of one this glorious. And this is important because this sets the, 
the tone from where we look at the letters to the churches. We've got to understand who this Jesus is that's speaking to his church. It is the perfected Messiah in his throne with angels and elders and fire and bronze and water rushing around him. In fact, Jesus' voice was described by John as the sound of rushing waters. So it wasn't the sound of a man speaking. He tried to describe it, and it sounded something like this. Just listen to this for a minute. powerful right that's the voice he heard I try to put some words to that I let Eliana check it for me first I had a, a, an American version reading of the Bible and it just didn't work because you had this and then this I am the Lord it just didn't work and then I tried to find someone who, who reads that passage in Revelation in Hebrew and then it sounded just weird so I said let's just listen to the rushing waters now imagine that being vocalized into words that's what it sounded like when he, Jesus spoke it wasn't just the, the voice of Pierre or the voice of Pete or imagine your good friend's voice had spoken to you about Jesus. He spoke with a sound that was so frightening that John wanted to fall dead. But then, in that moment of the awe and the fear of God, this is how he responds. He says, John, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Right, therefore, the things that you have seen. Those two words right there for says, you have seen me in my glory, you have seen me in my splendor, but let me remind you that I'm the one that went to the cross, I died, and today I have the ministry of reconciliation, man back to God, so don't be afraid. And because of that, I want you to write these next things. And then the first thing he addresses is his church. I can imagine that he might have wanted to address and if, if I had to say Jesus this is what you've got to address maybe speak about his splendor and his glory and the angels and the heavens but he says the very first thing that's on my heart let me speak to my bride I want to speak to the one I love I want to speak to my church I want to tell her how beautiful she is I want to tell her how great she's doing and then there's some things I want to speak to her about that I want to beautify that I want to make more beautiful than what it is and this is amazing because this is Jesus speaking to the church. Yes, seven churches in Asia Minor that were listed and addressed here, but it still echoes into today. It's his voice and his words to the church, to us today. And everything we're going to study over the next seven weeks is what Jesus has to say to every nation of the West. We can apply all of its principles, all of its life, all of its compliments, and all of its criticisms to ourselves. But this is the voice of roaring, thunderous water speaking to us today. I was praying. I said, Jesus, please, I don't know. Maybe I need to fast for a year and what will happen. Can my voice sound like you so that people really get that this is you speaking? See, we've got all the epistles written by men, yes, under the authority of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the Spirit. And yes, it is the voice or the word of God. But there's something different in the letters to the church in Revelation. This is Jesus speaking directly. 
I believe John was so in, in awe of God and living in such fear of God that he literally calculated every word he wrote down perfectly. And you'll see it here. At every beginning of every letter to the church, it states who it is that's speaking. It's not John speaking. It is Jesus. The one with the voice that sounds like rushing water. The one with fire and flame in his eyes. The one who walks amongst the lampstands and has the seven stars in his hands. And Jesus, when he sees his church, sees beauty. He sees through our brokenness. He sees the areas that we could grow in. And he says, you know what? I'm going to pull out the best that I can out of you. Because I want a pure and spotless bride that one day when I return and at the end of Revelation we read, we read about the celebration of the bride, groom that's come for the bride and the wedding feast of the lamb. When I come, I want a bride that is perfectly beautiful. And he calls out everything he sees in us and he compliments everything we are doing already. So over the next seven weeks, let's lean into these seven letters. Let's understand who it is from. And let's say, Jesus, we want to be as beautiful as we can to you. Let every nation, Somerset West, be a house and a church that is our best and our most beautiful. I love what Pastor Jim shared this morning. He was just with the church in South Africa. He said, if, if you were a church in Revelation, I think you would have been complimented by God. That's amazing. And we see this pattern in, in all the letters. It starts with the counselor speaking. Jesus comes to counsel his church. And then out of the counseling, there's a commendation, there's a criticism, there's a correction, and then there's the conqueror's promise. So it's important to know that it starts with the counselor speaking to us. Jesus coming to counsel his church. Imagine he's sitting here today and he's saying, every nation says, can I give you my counsel? I would say, yes, please, very much. Thank you so much. And he says, you know what? I want to say that you guys are doing great in, in singing. I want to compliment you guys that you guys are doing great in, in uh, packing our chairs nicely. I want to compliment you guys that you guys are doing great in, in reaching out to your community and unfasting the, the bonds of, of heaviness and oppression. But I also want to counsel you that there's some things that I think we could do better. There's some things that I think if you look at that and you work a little bit on that too and you let my grace cover you and my spirit's leading empower you, you can become even more beautiful. That's what happens in these letters. It starts with the words of Jesus to his church. And then to six out of the seven churches, he gives a commendation. He says to six out of the seven, you know what? There's something I want to compliment you in. Here's some great stuff that I've got to say about you. And our human nature is we move on quickly from the compliment and we get stuck with the, crit the criticism. It's just our human nature. Oh, this is so heavy to read. No, but the, the criticism never cancels the compliment. Somehow for us it does, but we've got to really celebrate the compliments. When he tells the church in Ephesus, I love your perseverance, he deeply means it. He says, I love a church that perseveres. So when the criticism comes, it doesn't cancel the compliment or the commendation. And then to, to five out of the seven churches, he gives criticism. Two of them didn't have any criticism. Is it actually possible to become a body that lives so that there's no criticism against us? Well, it was here, and I believe it is today. I believe in this church. I believe in every nation of the West, and I believe as we constantly pursue Jesus, we can become more and more beautiful, that if he had to be in our midst, he would give us compliments and not criticisms. It's actually possible. Two of these churches attained such a relationship with their bridegroom 
that it didn't have anything negative to say. Where there was a criticism, he brought a correction. It's a word we don't like that much, right? To be corrected. But let's be reminded why he corrected the churches because he sees beauty. He looks and he says, uh, there's some things I'm going to talk about. I'm going to correct it. And he corrects it with a call back of repentance back to him, back onto a, a different way of living because he sees beauty. And then at the end of every letter in this pattern that we're going to find in today's letter as well, there's the conqueror's promise. To the one who conquers, he's going to give a whole lot of things. And we're going to find out this morning what he's going to give to the one who conquers out of the letter of Ephesus. But then these beautiful things. A new name that only you and God will know. Isn't that beautiful? Manna and bread from heaven that'll taste different like anything else. And it speaks again of standing ground. It speaks again of Christianity being a constant lifelong journey of endurance. And to the one who conquers, the one who remains in Christ towards the end, oh my goodness, there's incredible promises. So over the next few weeks, let's find that pattern. Let's look at it and let's see how that applies to us as a church. So this morning, we're going to be studying the letter to the church in Ephesus. You can turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 7. And then we're going to see how God speaks to the church in Ephesus. Now let me say this. The church in Ephesus is quite familiar to us today because of the epistle the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus who was written by the Apostle Paul. Also, if you go to Acts chapter 19, you will see where this church was planted. This church was planted by the Apostle Paul. And then we've got the book of Ephesians that is one of the greatest epistles to study, one of my personal favorite books, one of those that we often refer to and we've actually done a series before where we looked through that whole book. But this is, this is something I want you to get. Even though the church of Ephesus was founded by the Apostle Paul. Imagine Apostle Paul founded every nation times the West. That's quite a little like, right? It was found by the Apostle Paul. But even though this church was found by the Apostle Paul, and they have one of the greatest letters ever written to the church, they still needed the realigning words of Jesus. Because that's just our human nature. Because we, we fall away and we, we run away and we forget the important things. So Jesus steps into this church and says, you know what guys, I planted you through the Apostle Paul in Acts 19 in a profound way when my Holy Spirit was poured out upon you. And you know what, you've got this incredible letter and you've actually done pretty well in living according to the letter that was inspired by my Spirit through him. But there's some things that I want to realign. And if we as a church ever get to a place where we don't want the realigning words of Jesus Christ it's done it's over with we as a follower of Jesus ever get to a place where we don't want those correcting realigning words of Jesus speak to us we might as well give up so let's see how he spoke to this church in Ephesus verse 1 to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. 
I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Lord Jesus, these are your words. I pray that your Holy Spirit would anoint it. And as we look at these words in depth, that you would speak to every heart. That we would return where we have fallen and that we would celebrate where you celebrate what we've done for you already. I pray that you would be the preacher to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. If you had to sum up this first letter in a very simple sentence, it's simply this. Keep your righteousness, but return to your first love. That's what he was saying to this church in Ephesus. He says, you guys are doing great on the righteousness side. You are living holy lives. You've seen the evil. You've turned against it. There's some evil in your midst. The Nicolaitans are around, and they, they're supposed to be Christians, but they lead people on a different way. And then these, these men that stand up and call themselves apostles, but their doctrine is wrong. And you guys have just said, no, that's not us. We live in a certain way because God has called us to live in a certain way. He says, you know what? That's great. I love that about you. I absolutely love that about you. Nick, I love that you are so righteous and integrous and in a good place. I'm going to make it very personal this morning because that's how Jesus wants to speak to his bride. But there's something missing here. That love that you had for me at the beginning, where's that gone? That relationship in the start where all you could think about was me, your intimacy with me, your relationship with me. Where's that feel and that fire? I want you to do all the great works that I've called my church to do, but never at the expense of loving me. In fact, that love that you have for me will be the fuel for the works. And your works are going to dry up unless you go back to the place of your first love. So keep your righteousness, but return to your first love. That's the invitation in this letter. That's the beauty that Jesus sees in his church. And for some of us, it's a real strange concept because we go to the church in Pergamum a couple of verses down and he speaks to this church and they were doing great with the love, but their lifestyles were full of sin. So they were the flip side of the story. He said, you really love. I mean, if you were the church that had to carry the banner of love, this is you guys. But you've neglected to do the righteousness. You live a sinful life. You allow sexual immorality to be amongst you. You follow the teachings of, of people who lead people astray. So you see, to Jesus, we, we think there's these, this tension between love and good works. But in Jesus' heart, they are never at odds. They're one and the same thing. Just love me and do what I command you. And because you love me, you will do what I command you. We can't separate this two. And for this church, he wanted to correct their love but we're going to get to the church later on where you wanted to correct their lifestyle. So love and lifestyle goes together, hand in hand. We cannot separate the two. So let's look at the scripture we just read. And I'm going to find some truths in here this morning to encourage us with. First, we see Jesus 
walks among his church. It starts by saying, these are the words of him who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So in John's vision, he saw Jesus walking and there were seven lampstands, not one with seven things like we usually imagine, seven individual lampstands, and he was constantly walking amongst them with seven stars in his hands. And that is such an incredible image of his very presence in his church. You see, Jesus is not outside of his church. He's not somewhere to be found. He is inside in the midst of his people. His very presence through the person of Jesus Christ is here in our midst. When we gather, when we don't gather, when we are the body in our homes throughout the week, he is right there. The question is, do we find him walking in our midst? Or are we focused on so many other things that we miss Jesus walking in our midst amongst us? This is such a clear image. I am amongst my church. And you know what would be the saddest places if we miss it and we don't see him walking amongst the church and his presence? You know what's even sadder? That there are some churches that don't have Jesus walking in their midst. And I'm not saying this by judgment. I'm saying this because we'll see that if you don't return to what I called you, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm not going to be walking around you anymore because you've got to return to me. Must be the most devastating place to be in, to be a church. The word church simply means ecclesia, which means a gathering of people. It must be the most devastating thing to gather and not have Jesus walking around. But this is an invitation. This is an invitation that when you pray in your room to say, Jesus, come and walk amongst me and you and my, my conversation with you, when you have a small group to say, yes, we get together and we cook and tear and we talk about the week and we pray for one another, but the greatest thing is when we get together so that Jesus can walk in our midst. When we get here on a Sunday, our one pursuit is that Jesus walks in our midst, that he be here, that we focus on him, and then consequently, he loves us and we his children and he ministers to us, but we come together to see him in the midst of his church. And that's what the whole revelation is about, Jesus in the center on the throne. Is he walking in your life? Is he walking in your family? Is he around? Is he in your midst? See, this is freely available to us. It reminded me immediately of the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned and God was walking in the garden. They actually hid from his presence. But now we've got the cross and because of the cross of Jesus, we can come boldly and allow him to live with us as a church in his presence. Let's read together, Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. That was the old covenant. The new covenant has come, and Jesus says, I want to be amongst my people. I want to be amongst my church. Some of us, don't want Jesus and his presence to be amongst us because maybe you have had a bad experience where it was mispositioned at another church and the power of God and the presence, was God, the presence of God was used in a way that, that made you feel not great on the inside. Maybe it has been done in an abusive way and you're just like, I don't like speaking about these things. Maybe you've grown up in a church environment where the presence of God is not really something that we, we look for. Or we after, as long as we read our Bible and go through our motions and pray and give and go to church and we've done our attendance, 
But we are missing out when we don't see Jesus walking in our midst. And this is the very first call. That's why it says, I am the one who walks amongst my church. It's an invitation unto him. And it's an invitation to say, Jesus, come and walk as you want, as you desire. Secondly, Jesus knows their vigilance and their perseverance. Not only is he walking in his church, but he looks at his church and he knows their works. You know what I love most about this? Is that I don't have to perform for men anymore because Jesus knows. I don't have to try and please man so that man may know my works. Jesus says, I know your works. I've been amongst you. I'm walking in your midst. I know what you do. The Bible says at one point that don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing and so get your reward here on earth. When you give to the poor, don't go around telling everyone, look how amazing I am. Then you already have received your reward. Can we be a people who, who, who rest in this that Jesus knows our vigilance, our perseverance, and our hard work? That he knows that we are living for him. This church in Ephesus were hardworking and persevering. They were setting up chairs 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning and the worship team was doing sound and then they led two services of music. They were hard workers. So similar to back here, hey? We make coffee every week and we go into the community. Hardworking people. They were persevering. They were, they were just keep on, keeping on going on, standing their ground. And you know what? These were real compliments. He said, well done, man. Yes, so. Ephesus, chief. You guys are really amazing in your hard work and labor for me. Come on. As Andre would say, tsa. Just thumbs up. This is amazing. And then he says, the other thing that I want to commend you on is that you've been super faithful in tasting doctrine. Because there's some guys out there that call themselves apostles. And they've come and they've preached the word in a different way. But you've taken my word and you've looked at it and you've addressed it. And it says, no, that's false. Sorry, guys. Don't listen. And you know what? This kind of spoke to my heart this week because it feels like today we're not allowed to do that anymore. We've got to be so PC that we can't call out a false word anymore. But it's in the Bible, guys. And we live in a world today where there's just endless things that we can go and discover. But as a church, we've got to taste everything that is said in accordance to his word. And we'd be able to say, sorry, that's false. Don't follow that teaching. Don't go down that road. It is false. This church did it, and Jesus said, well done for doing that. Can we be a church that says we only want to stick to the pure word of God? And anything that comes that's different to that, we'll just say, no, sorry, guys, that's not us. Let's go back to who we are, what we do. Let's just call it out and not go there. Because Jesus compliments that. He says, great, guys, this is amazing. And then he compliments that they have not fallen into the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now the Nicolaitans, I try to figure this out. There's some various thoughts, but the two things that has come out most is that this guy, Nicolai, whoever his name is, he led the church to sexual immorality and idolatry. And there's some things that he allowed to be done to his own wife because of his twisted thinking. Really, that's how bad it was. And Jesus said, well done for seeing that. And not allowing that to be in your house. He's calling it out. Can we be a church to even call out the sexual impurity in our midst? Say, we're not, we're not going to go there, guys. Sorry. We want to be complimented by Jesus saying, well done that you've put idolatry and sexual immorality outside of your world. Because Jesus compliments it. 
he gives it a one big thumbs up. That's beautiful, right? It gives me a sense like, I want to I wanna, I wanna be able to say, Jesus, I want to see a thumbs up from you because I'm not allowing these things to be in my life. So he comes and he knows their works. And I can't help but think that this church really took the Apostle Paul's letter to them to heart. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There he says, let not those apostles come with their deceitful emptiness. Don't allow it. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light. I imagine that when Jesus spoke to Ephesus, he was saying, you guys took the words of your leader to heart. That's what he gives leadership to church to, is to help a people grow into their Christ-likeness. And the things that Paul wrote to you, you have, you have done that. Well done. Big thumbs up compliment you know what i want us to see that i'm going to continue into the criticism but can we keep the compliment in the praiseworthiness that it is because jesus compliments these things when we become imitators of god who puts filthy speaking and crude joking out of our mouth on thursday night if you were at prayer i feel i want to share it now again i said we've got to repent before we pray for our nation what do we have to repent of how our hearts have allowed filthy talk and crude joking. Well, what do you say, Pierre? Well, if you've been using your phone to send around memes that speaks ill of leadership and makes jokes about presidents and maybe have sent a picture about a woman in a joking manner, you've partnered with the very thing that we want to pray against. So can we as a church become so set apart that we wouldn't even do that, that we'd be imitators of God because to Jesus, there's a big thumbs up right there. And then he says, guys, well done. But there's something I'm missing. And we see that Jesus misses their original affections. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Well done for doing everything so great. But you know what I miss? It's just your love for me. I miss that you wake up in the morning and the very first thing that you think about is me. I miss that you sing not because the music is good, but you sing because you love me. I miss that you come to your church community not to see your friends and, and hoy like a coffee and it's like it to check in. I miss that you come to church because you're coming for me. That's what I miss in my people. I miss that we don't gather just for a good event and a good night, that we gather for him. And we see this in John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Guys, it's all about the fuel of love for Jesus. It's all about loving him above everything else. Our affections, our desire, our delight is loving Jesus above everything else. Ephesus, well done, but love me again like you did at first. I remember when I met Christ personally, I grew up in a Christian home, Christian culture, 
Sunday church, Sunday school, discipleskapsgroepen, the whole thing. But at the age of 13, I was at a Louis Brits event. Any Louis Brits fans in the house? A kruis, a brug, ons draai nooit terug, a nies. So you guys know the whole story? It's quite funny. I've got to tell you a quick story. This is just a, a rabbit hole. When I was a matric, I emailed Louis Brits and I said, hey, Louis, I'm a bass player and I would love to play bass for you one day. Um, how does that work? And he replied and said, sorry, Pierre, he didn't know me at all. I literally just, I was bold like that. And he said, uh, the only bass players that I make use of are guys who studied at Pretoria Tech level and have a degree in music. So I'm sorry, not going to fly. Uh, funny is, four years later, Helena and I met Louis Brits and then uh, we started working with him and eventually I became his bass player. And so I went up to him one day and said, Louis, there's just something I want to tell you. Do you remember the email you got from a young guy in matric? You, he couldn't remember. I said, well, you said your standard is, is a, like tech I said, so much for dropping the standard, eh? And we had a little fun moment about it. But I was at a Louis Brits event, 13 years old. There was no altar call. It was just worship. And I felt Jesus' love overwhelm me completely. So much so that I pulled myself to the front of the venue and on my knees, I remember that being my moment where I said, Jesus, be everything in my life. That was my moment. It was my born again, I love Jesus moment. And since then, I've had so many moments with him like that. And that's what he says, Ephesus, keep doing the great things, but come on, love me above all. Put me in the center of everything in your heart. Make me the thing that you dream about, that you delight in, that you are after every single day. Now, I want to bring it home because sometimes we battle with how do I love God? How do I describe that feeling of loving God? Jesus said something in, in Luke chapter 14. He says, unless you, and bear with me, I'm going to explain it to you. Unless you hate your father, mother, brother, sister, and children, you will not be worthy to be my disciple. So now we read that and we just face, okay, now it's Jesus' love and now he speaks about hate. How does this work? I want to try and reconcile it to you this morning. What he was saying is he was using the, the feeling we have for our family to describe how we should feel about him. So I want you for a moment to think about the person in your family that you love the most. Just that one person. If, it's, if there's husbands here, I hope it's your wife. Wives, I hope it's your husbands. Because that's what Jesus said. We should love our spouses like that. Children, think about that feeling. It's fuzzy, right? There's a lot of emotion involved. What Jesus said is, your love for me should be so amazing and stupendous that when you, they see your love for me and they look at how you love your wife or your children or your father or mother, it looks like hate. So your love for me should be so beautiful and pure and overwhelming that when they see how Pierre loves Eliana in comparison, it looks like hate. So it doesn't say hate your wife. It says love me so much that you would follow after me completely. That if I call you anywhere, you would go. Now with that, we value family. But here's the thing. We love Jesus, but we value family. Value stems from the love of Jesus. And because we love Jesus, we can live the value of family and have family love. But there's an agape love that we have for him that trumps everything. And Eliana knows this and she's secure in this. I love Jesus far greater and far more than I love her. But I love her deeply as a husband, she's his wife. Alika knows I'm a dad. I love her like a dad should love a child. But she knows my first and foremost love 
and affection is Christ. So those feelings of loving your family multiplied by a thousand, that's how we can love Jesus. That's what available, what's available to us. And I believe some of you might not have experienced that, but I'm praying for that during this series and even this week and even this morning that you would have such a moment with him that your heart just bursts with love for Christ. Remember how it was at first, that moment where you encountered my love and consequently have encountered it again and again and go back. So great, well done church, you're doing amazing. I miss your affection, how do we fix this? And Jesus says that, he calls him back to himself, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. It's a calling back to a person. It's not a calling back to a church program. It's not a calling back to another prayer meeting. It's not a calling back to doing more and doing better. It's simply a calling back to Jesus. I would have not previously thought that repentance could be back to loving Christ. Sounds a little bit at odds, right? Repent and love me again, like you have before. Because repent is a word we don't like to use that often. You don't tell me to repent. But repentance is metanoia, which means a changed inner man, a new way of thinking. So change your inside and the way you think about me to such a degree that you are back to that place where me and you are just together. That's the invitation to the church in Ephesus. And that's the invitation to all of us today. I want to talk to us about the lamp and the lampstand. He gives us real imagery to work with here. Revelation 1 says that the seven churches were represented as seven lampstands. And the lamp or the candle could be the candlestick and the candle has a, a beautiful relationship. These two work together. But here's what I want you to see, that the candle which represents Christ, the light of the world. Jesus said to this church, turn back, otherwise I might just come and remove the lampstand from you. The lamp will remain because it's Christ, it's Jesus, but I might take, take this away. Unless you return and loving me again. And what it's resembling is, you see what we do as a church, we want to be as shiny as we can. We want to look as great as we can. We want to have the best ministries. We want to have the best stages. We want to do the stuff. We want to do the recordings. We want to have great life groups. We want, in fact, 80% of our people in our life groups. And those are all good things. But if the lampstand becomes the focus, it seals the glory from the lamp. And then God says, I don't like that. I'm going to remove this. But the lamp will remain in place and intact. And it simply is, will you love me so much that whatever you do in church, whatever you are as a community, would simply be to celebrate my love for you? Would you love me so much that you want to elevate me over everything? That I would be the one that I can stand on. Every nation sums the west. I want to be the light that positions my loving light on this lampstand. Will you allow me to? And it simply is by loving him, by honoring the lamp and the light so much that this will take place. It's not by doing more. It's by being connected to the lamp. It's by saying, yes, we have an opportunity to lift Jesus up. We have an opportunity to make him beautiful. We have an opportunity to show him to the world. 
We will be a people who lift the love of Jesus above everything else. That's the invitation. And then the very last thing that we see is the conqueror's promise. Jesus promises a future feast. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He's saying, Ephesus, my bride, every nation sums the west. If you remain in the place of making me your greatest affection, making me your first love, your primary love, one day, when all the brokenness of this world is done by and I come and I return and I take you to myself and we will be in paradise together, there's gonna be a feast in the paradise city of God where you're gonna sit and you're just gonna be fully satisfied with everything that I have for you. Isn't that beautiful? How do we get there? Love him. Love him. And when we love him, we would wanna glorify him. And put him on a pedestal. Because he's the only one that we put on a pedestal here. Put it on a pedestal that his love would be shown to the world. And I want to end with this thought. Our access to the feast of life in paradise one day is effortlessly locked up in feasting on all his satisfying affections today. There's an invitation to every one of us to one day be at that feasting table. It's effortlessly locked up in just loving Christ. Just making Him the very thing that you live for. This week, God arrested my heart and said, Pierre, how much have you put into building a great lampstand? Not that there's anything wrong with leading a church and trying to think how we can better and, and grow and reach people and love people more. But if that's the focus, you're missing the whole point. And this week, I had to go back and say, Jesus, I'm sorry that I focus so much on the lampstand and the good works and the great stuff. I simply want to focus on loving you because in the lampstand will follow. If you love me, you will obey my commands. You will do everything that I've designed you to do. And I said, Jesus, I'm sorry that in, the, in my brain, in, in the, the leadership team of Every Nation of the West, we so quickly focus on the lampstand. And the call to you today is make it about the light. Make it about the candle. Make it about the lamp. Fall in love with Jesus again. It's possible. If you feel like it's impossible, He can awaken in your heart an affection for Him again that He will feel. It's effortless. How do I feast upon Him? You open up His Word. You just read. I don't understand it. Keep reading. I don't, I, keep reading. Maybe by day, by day three, something is just going to happen in your spirit. In fact, it will because the Word is life. How do I feast on Him? You get with someone and say, can you pray with me? Because my love for Jesus is just, it's dead how do you do it you start by acknowledging like Ephesus you've got to return to him